Are GMOs safe or are they killing us? Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Now, when it comes to gut health, we are learning more every day. Most everyone can agree that at the root of our gut issues is the undeniable truth that we've been ingesting food that unbeknownst to us has been creating damaging effects on the lining of our digestive system for years, resulting in a commonly shared condition known as leaky gut. And in my quest to heal my own, nearly every expert, every health practitioner that I've met with or interviewed has insisted that avoiding GMOs, genetically modified organisms, is a necessary first step. But with many of these simple truths that we seek to hold on to in an effort to just get things right when it comes to our own health, it seems that simple labels have been complicated and muddled by a mix of crafty marketing, big business, and political agenda. Look, unlike some of my colleagues, I'm not going to profess to have all the answers, nor do I wish to take a firm stance on something just because it's the popular thing to do. I think that's the easy way. Rather, in an effort to help you make a more informed decision about what goes on your plate, in this interview, I want you to hear from an expert on the other side who, contrary to popular belief, believes that GMOs are perfectly safe and that the non-GMO labels that we look for on our food is actually a joke with marketing companies getting in the last laugh. In this interview, I bring to you Dr. Steve Savage, a 35-year veteran of agricultural science. Steve has a BS in biology from Stanford University and a PhD in plant pathology from UC Davis. Since 1996, Dr. Savage has been an independent consultant continuing to work with a variety of technology and investment clients in the area of plant genetics. In other words, crop chemicals, biocontrol, biotechnology, biofuels, and sustainability. I asked Steve to join me to shed some light on the safety and sustainability of GMOs, genetically modified organisms. And as with all things, I will let you tune in, weigh in on his position, and make your own decision. But before I turn it over to our interview, there's a couple of things I want to clear up. Number one, Steve, by his own admission, has worked as a consultant for many of the large chemical companies over the course of the last 30 years, including Monsanto. You might argue that that gives him a very strong bias, but you can't deny the fact that it also gives him an insider's perspective that we don't often hear. Number two, while we certainly don't agree, Steve and I, on some rather important positions, Steve sets the record straight on a few of the, quote, facts that I shared with him. And in retrospect, I have to admit, those facts that I was sharing in large part were not facts that I could confirm, but rather just data or information that, that I was repeating from a source that I considered reliable. My point is, this interview reminded me that we all kind of need a healthy dose of skepticism just because we saw something on the news or we read it once on a babelicious food blog or heard about it from our favorite podcaster doesn't make it fact, no matter how loud the argument. And number three, 
I personally don't believe that all genetic modification is bad or toxic or, or even detrimental to our health. Some genetic modification simply turns off a gene. So my greatest concern is in the entanglement, the entanglement of chemical and biotech companies who are responsible for the chemical use and marketing of those chemicals to treat our crops, soils, and even our golf courses. I am concerned about what we do know about glyphosate. Glyphosate is the chemical compound uh, most of us know as, as Roundup. But I have to tell you, I'm terrified about what we don't know. So I urge you to avoid taking a definitive position on any of this stuff. It just, it doesn't serve us. We can learn more and make better decisions by just having an open mind because we're learning more every day and we have to get comfortable with science. We need to listen to both sides and ultimately we have to make the decision that feels right for us. One that isn't based on popularity, but it's based on sound information and science. Science is not funded by companies who have a dog in the fight. Now, if you're like me and you just want to know more after listening to this interview, or if you're curious about the blog sites that I referred to in this interview where I was reading court transcripts and taking a deeper dive, I would encourage you to check out a website called walkamileproject.com. On their site, you'll find an accompanying podcast, but what I loved about the podcast series called GMO Truth and the website is that you actually get to look at photos or images of the transcripts of the court documentation. I just find that to be a more reliable source than taking somebody's word for it. It is my pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce Dr. Steve Savage, who I have the privilege to be able to call Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Shirley. This has been a journey for myself and for our listeners. And like many, it's not uncommon to go through the aisles of the grocery store feeling overwhelmed and looking for terms or labels that give us a sense that we're doing right by our family. One of the most common labels or buzzwords that we're, we've been told that we, we must be diligent or uh, vehemently opposed to is anything that has GMOs. But I wonder if the average person really knows what a GMO is. So if I could, let's start with defining what a GMO is. What does that stand for? And what does it really mean? Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, if you look, some there are places you can find pictures of what various plants looked like before they were ever domesticated and turned into the things that we use as crops today. People made some pretty amazing genetic modifications just by doing selections. And they, they had no idea. I mean, for thousands of years, people were doing this, not the slightest idea of how genetics worked at all. And uh, But they would just tend to pick the ones that were best or looked best. Uh, when people found something like an olive tree or a grape that was particularly good, they learned how to clone that. They learned how to sort of turn off genetic change. It, it's kind of amazing how different things are and how much they've changed over time. Finally, people learned how to do intentional breeding and uh, 
found ways to to make changes uh, back in the 60s and 70s. They did that by mutagenizing plants, either seeds or budwood. Then starting in the 70s, people started learning how to actually make specific known changes in the genetic code. And by the early 80s, it was possible to start doing that in plants. And so that's when sort of intentionally genetically modified or precisely genetically modified crops started to happen. And that industry was extremely careful in the sense of that they put in place this elaborate uh, regulatory regime before anything was ever commercialized with the whole idea being, all right, this, this is something new. Let, let's do this really carefully. But uh, they sort of didn't get any credit for that at all. And uh, the people who chose to be opposed to that, not usually for scientific reasons, more sort of for political, sort of philosophical, uh, economic reasons. And um, so there, there has been this pushback. But the truth is, these are some of the smallest genetic changes that, that we, we can talk about, but they happen to be specific things that are useful useful either for farmers or consumers or for somebody. If we had to give it a very basic Webster-style definition of what a genetically modified food is, what would that look like? So the way GMO is being used is sort of applying that specifically to transgenic plants. That's the plants where you have actually taken a gene either from another plant or from a bacteria or for something else and and intentionally moved um, a gene. And so that particular way of genetic modification is what most people mean when they say GMO. Now, it's getting a little bit tricky because there are some new methods coming along um, where, well, maybe the gene, like there's a potato that's out there now that um, the, the gene comes from a wild potato. But you, breeding potatoes would take, you know, decades to, to actually move that gene. Um, they're just saying, well, why don't we skip over all of that and just move the one gene we wanted to move from wild potato? Well, that's called cisgenic. Well, is that different? Or there are new methods to do the manipulations. There are these things called CRISPRs that just make it so much easier than, than the methods that have been used for the last 20 or 30 years. There, you know, sometimes what's being done is what's called gene editing, where you're saying, well, I'm, I'm going to take out a little bit of this gene, or I'm going to change just a couple of base pairs here in this, in this gene. And so there's sort of an ongoing debate as to how will that be regulated? And then I think in terms of activists, there's a sort of sorting out that they're having to do of, well, which, which one of these different things are we now going to try to lump under this same extremely imprecise word, which is GMO. Is genetic modification that happens and occurs naturally, would that fall under the umbrella of GMO? No, most people would, wouldn't say that happens. And, and some pretty dramatic things can happen that way. I, I, just to give you a historical example, maybe not just in nature, but something mm -hmm. that happened probably 10,000 years ago, uh, farmers in uh, in what would be the Middle East today, were cultivating some grasses that were available 
And somehow, nobody knows how, because it's 10,000 years ago, they ended up with what we call wheat today, which is actually a hybrid of three different grass species. Hmm. And that happened without anybody even trying to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all you have to do is look at dogs, and uh, you can see how <laughs> much variation you can get without any specific knowledge of what you're doing. But uh, all of that variation has been available through what people might classify as natural mechanisms. <laughs> well, let's talk about the health implications or lack thereof, maybe, in your opinion, of GMOs. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you think the public needs to be aware of? Because if, if I can speak on behalf of my listener, it's so overwhelming. You know, the science of food, constantly ever changing enemy whoever that is you know you know one year it's it's fat the next year it's sugar and and, or gmos or um you know factory farmed animal products i mean we're, we're always picking a different enemy and because i think the average person doesn't have the time or maybe even the interest or maybe it's just the time to yeah. sort all these things out and to read through stacks of of research and then to look further to find out who funded the research and what do these results really say we we kind of have to trust our experts and sometimes it's the experts who are screaming the loudest who we assume well they can't be wrong because look how upset they are i've found myself even go, even saying oh i heard so and so said that was bad so i guess it's bad you know without ever doing any research myself until this right. year now i'm like eyeballs deep in research. I just find it fascinating. But that's kind of what we have to rely on is like, well, you know, I read this in Time magazine, and I then I heard it on CNN. And then I heard my favorite blogger screaming about it. So I guess I shouldn't eat it, or I should stay away from it. Or I guess this is the new public enemy number one. As it relates to GMOs, I wanted this to be a conversation where we remove the hysteria, and really let people kind of make a decision for themselves, but an informed decision. And in doing so, Steve, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you think people need to be aware of um, when it comes to GMOs? Well, I think one of the things as a specter that he's raised is sort of this idea that, well, you just never know, you know, you don't know, you, you, you're doing something new. And so you don't know what, um, what might happen. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that in fact, this is a case where you actually know so much more about what happened than you do by these other methods. That's one of the reasons that that they put that sort of regulatory thing in place, which was sort of to say, because we know what we're doing, this is something we're perfectly comfortable having reviewed by regulatory agencies. In the U.S., that means the FDA, the EPA, and uh, the Department of Agriculture look at different aspects of it. And they can evaluate it and they can say, yeah, th- this seems okay. Because with the ability to take a gene from one thing and put it in another where you know exactly what happened. I mean, there, there's a story from the history of it. Uh, corn is short on the amino acid lysine. And so that's why in a, in a diet that is dependent on corn, it's good to have beans in the diet to, to balance that. Well, for animal feed, uh, corn is very important, but they're always short on lysine and they're having to supplement it. So the idea is, well, how can we make a corn with, with more lysine? Well, they knew that Brazil nuts are very high in lysine, the protein in a Brazil nut. But they also knew that 
some people are allergic to Brazil nuts. So an experiment was done very early on. This wasn't even in a plant. This is just saying, okay, I'm going to get the gene for that protein in Brazil nut. I'm going to express that in a bacteria. Then I'm going to test that to see if that is the thing that people are allergic to. They can just take some of you know their, their blood and they can run a, a, a test and see if that's what it reacts to. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it was. So the project stops because, okay, we certainly can't use that. But what you'll hear out there is, oh, it almost happened. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. it, it, it wasn't. It was years away from happening. And that's the whole beauty of it is when, when you're doing something specific, you do know what you're doing. So th- th- I think that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions there is is that you don't know what you're doing. Mm. And, and, and perhaps the reason why, and rightfully so, is we just have historical reasons <laughs> really good historical reasons not to trust the EPA and the FDA. And and we know how entangled politics are with consumerism and big business. I also think that the preponderance of chemical spraying of foods and the effects it seems to have on our digestive system or soft tissue organs that those are some of the things that people seem to be more con- I, that that at least in my mind seems to be what people are most concerned about as opposed to allergens sure but it it seems as though if there's a way to avoid it shouldn't we if we really don't know well and going back to those chemicals um mm-hmm. Most of the things that people will point to and they'll say, well, this this was something that was used at a time and people said it was safe and then mm-hmm. it turned out it wasn't. But if you look closely at the things that they're pointing out, they're usually decades old. And um, Give me an example. What do you mean? Like DDT, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And people thought DDT was safe. And it was in terms of being an acute poison. You know, it wasn't acutely poisonous at all, but it bioaccumulated, it built up in the ecosystem, it had all these other effects that weren't known. But that's 50 years ago. And there has been a tremendous amount learned about toxicology and environmental toxicology since then. I've been watching the agricultural chemicals sector for the last 40 years, and things have changed dramatically. Actually, the vast majority of things that we're using today fall into um, very, very low to non-toxic categories in terms of effects on mammals. Most people aren't in touch with the fact that these things have been changing dramatically. I would also suggest, however, that we don't have a great history if you look at a company like Monsanto. We don't have, if you look at their history and the court cases the deception and the years of covering up uh, what they knew was any level toxic. You know, we look at the history and you have to go, well, you know, can, can we really trust this combination of regulating agencies and the big chemical companies uh, to have our best interest when obviously their best interest is to genetically modify foods so that they are depend upon these chemicals that need to be sprayed and that they can outlive these chemicals and then the farmers need to rely on uh, those same chemicals. It just feels like an environment where we're, we're not sure who to trust. That's that narrative that, you know, people are sitting around in a corporate 
boardroom and saying, how can we sell more chemical? This is how we'll sell, you know, mm-hmm. okay, that that's a narrative that mm-hmm. works and has been made up. But actually, if you know the actual people who are involved, mm-hmm. it's an extremely different story. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you who was the first person to really say, I think it would be a good idea to try to make a crop that was resistant to this herbicide called glyphosate. I knew him when he was a postdoc at UC Davis, and I was a graduate student. His name's Luca Camai. He's kind of this wild and crazy Italian guy. And then uh, in about 1982, I think, he left to join a little startup company called Calgene. And uh, genetically engineered insulin had had been produced. It was just the very beginning of biotech in the whole medical area. And there were some people and some venture capitalists who thought, you know, there's got to be some applications of this in agriculture. And so they hired a guy like um, Luca because Mm -hmm. he would be up to speed on what was known about this technology at that time. And essentially what they said to him was, Luca, come up with your own project. And he came up with that. I'm kind of amazed that he had even heard of Roundup, the herbicide, because it it only, it was a brand new herbicide in the 80s um, and very, had become very popular in grapes and trees and things like that, where you you could spray it on the weeds underneath. And as long as it was only hitting the bark of the tree, it was fine. He knew that this was this really effective herbicide, which happened to have very, very low toxicity to mammals. It didn't move in water like some herbicides had a tendency to do. You know, he knew that it was it was very attractive, but it it, it was a non-selective herbicide, meaning just about any green plant it was going to shut down. Mm-hmm. But at the time, nobody knew how it worked. But he thought, well, if I can figure out how it works and figure out how to, to make a resistance to it, that could be useful for farmers. He had no commercial interest. He, you know, he, he didn't have a commercial bone in his body, actually. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I did not know that. But I don't think it changes the fact that, you know, since that time, since its invention, glyphosate is now everywhere. And and its increased use is just astronomical. In just the years 2001 to 2007, 180 million pounds of glyphosate, of Roundup. I, that's like to say Fleming, the Scottish scientist who discovered penicillin, um, you know, that there's, there's no culpability on the part of pharmaceutical companies because Fleming discovered penicillin by accident. I mean, that argument just one doesn't excuse the other. They don't even relate in my mind. Well, no. and not that I'm suggesting that any company doesn't have the right to capitalize. But but the other thing is you have to realize uh, that there's that that paper that Chuck Benbrook put out and he, he quotes a 400 million pound number. But what you have to realize is that that's something in his case spread over many years over more than 100 million acres. Mm hmm in any given place, we're not talking about very much of this. We're, we're talking maybe a pound on an acre. We're talking like a soda can on, on a football field, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of volume. So you can make those numbers sound really dramatic. I guess what, what would really matter more is to know, and I don't know the answer to this, and maybe you can tell us, um, what assurances do we have that glyphosate is actually safe from an accumulative standpoint for humans? Well, we certainly know that its main mode of action, it inhibits a certain enzyme, mm-hmm. okay? And that enzyme doesn't even occur in animals. 
at all. It only occurs in plants and some bacteria. Do you mean like a, a metabolic pathway? Yeah. So it, it has to do with a certain amino acid pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's called the shikimate pathway. Yes. And uh, we don't have that. What it, its target is something that, that we don't even have. Don't our intestines contain bacteria that have a shikimate pathway? They would contain some, but at the amounts that you would ever get, you, you're you not having any effect on that gut flora. How do I, we don't know how much we're getting, really, do we? We do. Well, because any chemical that gets registered and re-registered in the case of something that's that old now, it's been through the process several times, one of the requirements that that is it, there for, for EPA is called intermediary metabolism and, and environmental fate. And so you basically have to look at, well, what happens with it? What, how much is left after what time? If you think about herbicides, that's usually something you use at the beginning of the season. You know, these things don't just last forever. They break down over time. They get metabolized by the plant. Then the residues can be checked in crops, and those are done from time to time. The, you know, the USDA kind of rotates which crops, and they, they look at, see what's there. They look actually for hundreds of different things in whatever crop they're targeting. They do 12 or 14 crops a year. And so we know a tremendous amount about what residues are and aren't there at the end of the season. Generally, what that exercise does is called a pesticide data program, PDP, um, year after year, it says, gee, what we can find is stuff at incredibly low levels that's not of concern. It's not of concern? It's not of concern to whom? And do, do, what do we know about the accumulative effect of having this in just in our environment? Well, for one thing, you, we do know that it is like a lot of things, something that, that is excreted. Mm -hmm. So it isn't something that's accumulated. We do know a lot about what kind of chemicals would be accumulated, you know, say would, and there were some in the past. Mm -hmm. And people have a very good handle on, all right, what, what are the properties that, that make for a chemical that would be accumulated? And nothing like that would, would be continued to be registered. And you have to forgive me because I don't have the study in front of me, but I did the, I did run across when I was searching for, information on the cumulative effect of glyphosate. Um, there was a rat study. They gave glyphosate to these animals, and they did a seven-day study and a 14-day study. One, they measured um, glyphosate in bones, kidneys, liver, and colons uh, one dose after seven days, and there was six to seven percent of the compounds still remaining. And now that was, a, I believe it was a rat study. To your knowledge, has similar studies been done on humans to actually look at consumers who are consuming produce that we know has been contaminated or sprayed with glyphosate? I, I really can't think of any produce crops that would be treated mm. with glyphosate just because it would kill the produce crop. So unless it was a, a glyphosate-tolerant crop and basically that's not directly edible crops for the most part. Okay, so th that's a misconception yeah. then. So, um, Yeah, and no, because it wouldn't be a live plant if it was being sprayed. <laughs> so there, there's glyphosate-tolerant corn, mm -hmm. 
and soybeans, mm-hmm. but there is, I suppose there is some sweet corn, but... That are being sprayed then with glyphosate, and, and are you saying that those crops are being then fed to animals? Well, in the case of regular corn, yes, uh-huh. it is. If you want to say, well, what what about somebody who ate this at some level mm-hmm, for a mm-hmm. long time? Yes. That, that would be the case of animals for the last 20 years. And there's a thing that gets nicknamed the... Um, the trillion meal study, okay. which is uh, a professor at Davis basically looked through all of the records out there about animal health before and after the introduction of biotech crops. Mm-hmm. And so with sort of the premise that, well, if there was going to be something, th- these are, you know, many generations of animals that ate that their entire lives. And there was no evidence whatsoever of some kind of problem that has cropped up in the animals that have been fed this. And uh, that that would be at dramatically higher levels than, than anything that, you know, you can imagine that an, uh, a human might get. Because this would be a major part of their food in mm-hmm. many cases. Not only here, but in Europe and uh, all around the world, actually. Europe doesn't allow any uh, cultivation of biotech crops, but their animals eat a tremendous amount of imported biotech crops from from, uh, North America and South America. So then what, if anything, do you think the consumer should be wary of? I mean, you have children, what, and you want them to live forever. (laughs) What what would you recommend that consumers be most concerned about or, or what should we be paying attention to? I do have a handful of things that I avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of mycotoxins? My- mycotoxins like food fungus? Yeah, things like aflatoxin. Um, these are natural products, but the kind of natural products you absolutely don't want. And in general, in the developed world, we're highly protected from this because the crops that can be contaminated with these, this, this is something usually it involves something like insect damage or drought stress and the, the plant is compromised. It gets infected by this fungus called aspergillus and it can make this terrible mycotoxin, mm-hmm. one of the most potent carcinogens known. And in the developing world where people are dependent on maize and uh, groundnuts, which we would call peanuts, they actually end up with exposure to this because they don't have a system that is there to sort of know if there's a risk in a given season of a given crop and check it and make sure it doesn't go into the food supply. Um, Tree nuts would be another thing that can be infected that way, something like almonds or pistachios or walnuts. Are you suggesting, Um, do you avoid um, those crops? No, I don't avoid those crops from California. Ah. I specifically avoid those if I don't know that they came from California. Mm, California specifically? Well, in in the case of almonds, yes, Mm -hmm. because pretty much your other choices are coming out of Western Asia or Uzbekistan or, you know, someplace else. How about coffee? Coffee, depending on how it's handled, it doesn't have aflatoxin. There's a different ochre toxin, I think, can be an issue there, depending on how it's processed. But I think in general, that's done well. For for the crops where that is a threat, like peanuts or something like that, I, I want those to come from a developed world place where, in the case of almonds, for instance, the shelled almonds at it, it, these huge plants where they're, you know, 
bringing in and processing millions of pounds of almonds. The almonds actually go down a conveyor belt, single file, and a light is shined on them. And if they fluoresce at a certain wavelength, that means that fungus might be there. A little puff of air knocks that almond off the line. And as long as the the growers have done a good job of controlling the insects that spread the fungus, um, that percent that might be that way is low enough that that clean-out method can do the job. So I feel perfectly comfortable eating um, shelled almonds and and even peanuts that that go into products in the U.S. go through that kind of a thing. I I avoid nut crops that haven't gone through that. Mm. And is there labeling that the consumer can look for to know that it meets those standards? In that case, what you can look for is like California almonds Mm, or, mm -hmm. or U.S. peanuts. So if we can, let's shift our focus to the label organic. What misconceptions do you think consumers need to be aware of as it relates to that label, USDA certified organic? Yeah, I think the biggest myth that's out there about organic is the idea that it was grown without pesticides. Correct, yeah. Tremendous number of people believe that. And that actually isn't true at all. I just saw a survey and that people ask, what, what does organic mean? And the overwhelming majority of people believe that if they're buying something organic, it means it has not, there, it has not been exposed to pesticides. Right. And that's, that's not true for, for two fundamental reasons. The, the first one is that plants make a lot of their own pesticides. You know, uh, everyone's familiar with nicotine, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a fairly toxic chemical. A lot of plants make nicotine um, as a way to try to ward off pests. Uh, you, you would get that in your cauliflower, in your eggplant, in, in tomatoes at some levels. Now, they're not at dangerous levels, but again, lots of plants make things that are there to try to, they're, they're sort of a plant-made pesticide. What does organic mean then? The organic farmers still need to use pesticides in addition to, as with conventional farmers, all the other ways they control pests. The The limitation for organic is that the pesticide has to qualify as natural. Mm. And unfortunately, I, you know, we've all been subjected to natural marketing for so yes. long that we sort of equate natural with safe. <laughs> but that's true at all. Um, some of the most toxic things we know about are natural. Now, if anything is registered as a pesticide that happens to be a natural product, it has to go through the same sort of scrutiny from the EPA as anything else. So you don't actually have to worry about the natural pesticides that are used. Um, But the thing is, they're not safer necessarily than the synthetic ones. There are a lot of both organic and conventional pesticides that are super safe hardly have any toxicity to animals at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some that are intermediate and even some that are, you know, what, what are considered moderately toxic in both cases. Um, but the problem is that some of the natural options that are available to the organic grower might not be as effective as some of the others. And that's one of the big reasons that yields in organic crops are a lot lower. They, they, they struggle to be able to control certain pests with, with the options they're limited to. And again, remember, the limitation isn't around safety. 
it's it's around a philosophical decision that says, well, I, I want things that are natural. Mm-hmm. What about uh, non-GMO? If Is it possible that I'm eating something that's labeled organic and non-GMO, and it actually has been genetically modified? <laughs> the one that finally... Uh, got me mad enough that I wrote something about it. And then I posted it in Forbes and elsewhere. They were advertising ruby red grapefruit as non-GMO. And you can buy organic ruby red grapefruit. Mm -hmm. Well, ruby red grapefruit back in the 60s was produced by taking a bunch of budwood of regular um, grapefruits, exposing it to gamma radiation, kills most of them you grow the ones that survived and in a very rare occasion amongst those they happen to find this desirable you know pigmented nearly seedless thing that is the ruby red grapefruit which i happen to love i love ruby red grapefruit Mm -hmm. but it's totally genetically modified it's just nobody knows what all happened to it Mm. in terms of the mutations we have no idea if there were non-target mutations how are companies able to be certified non-GMO if they're selling the ruby red grapefruit, which we know has been genetically modified? Again, as I said, the, the term genetically modified is not a precise term. Mm. And the FDA actually weighed in on this. And the, they came out with this finding that they said, well, we would prefer that people use much more accurate descriptions uh, than this but we will not pursue enforcement actions. So basically, they rolled over and allowed the non-GMO certified sort of thing to go out there and put on this label, which this isn't a label that has any you know, government sort of uh, oversight of it or anything like that. It's basically, they're saying, we know that this isn't a transgenic crop but they're not paying any attention to what other kind of modifications occurred. Steve, do you buy organic? No, I, I specifically avoid it. <laughs> and the, the main reason that I do. <laughs> You're like the only person in America who's going to admit this. Like I, I laugh whenever this question is asked to people because no one would ever, even if they don't, um, right. they, they'll just say, oh, no, absolutely. Oh, of course, I always buy organic when, when it's available. Um, it, do you avoid buying organic? Yes. Really? And tell us why. Well, uh, there are several reasons. I mean, one of them is that, that I know that I don't need to spend the extra money to avoid residue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, the second reason is that I know that there are some environmental downsides to organic. The, the biggest one is that it's less efficient in the use of land. Um, Mm. Whether it's academic studies or surveys of what happens with real life commercial scale growers, we're talking 15 to 35 even higher percent deficits in the sense of the yield is lower with the organic. Well, that matters because if you were ever to do organic on a large scale, um, that means you need a lot more land. Because the harvest Uh, is smaller. Right. So I, I did the math. Every once in a while, USDA does a great big study uh, survey of organic growers. They get like 60, 65% of all the U.S. organic growers to, to fill out the survey. And then I can compare that to the conventional. And in 2014, the last time they did it, in order to have produced all of our crops 
as organic uh, that year, we would have needed 109 million more acres of farmland. Mm. That, that isn't even remotely possible. So the question is, how do we feed the world with uh, organic crop that doesn't have the same harvest yield? Right. And, and that's almost an academic question because I don't think you'd ever get anywhere close to that. It becomes actually somewhat an operational question in, say, fruit and vegetable crops where 5, 8, you know, 10% might be done organic. Well, the thing is, the land that's really suitable for, say, growing strawberries need cool coastal environment or, you know, the perfect area for for apples or things like that. That's not an infinite supply of land. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that it sort of kicks in much quicker than trying to feed the world kind of questions. And then the other thing is... um, there, there are certain ways, particularly in these fruit and vegetable crops, where you can be supplying the fertilizer to them at just the right levels. They call it spoon feeding, since most of these things are drip irrigated. Um, you, the plant needs different amounts of nutrition at, uh, at different times of the season. And you can sort of ramp it up and down the way the plant needs it with something that you can put through the drip line. That's really hard or nearly impossible to do with what's allowed for organic fertilizers. Now, at the end of the day, the plant absorbs exactly the same nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus, but with organic, you can't control that. And so you actually end up with a higher risk of, of putting some of those nutrients, say, down into the groundwater or something. I think I know the answer to my question, but um, do you also avoid foods or yeah, produce that are labeled non-GMO? <laughs> I try to. It's getting harder and harder. <laughs> because, and, and actually, I've written to some of the, the, the producers, you know, the, the companies that, that produce it. Like, I have a favorite uh, greenhouse tomato uh, producer that I like to get there, um, greenhouse tomatoes. The, the tomatoes on the vine, really good, really tasty. But they were labeling them as non-GMO. They didn't have sort of the official thing, but they they listed it that way. Mm -hmm. And they basically apologized and said, we're really sorry, but the people we licensed the germplasm from made that a requirement. Wow. Um, I I think a lot of them recognize that this isn't maybe a great thing and it doesn't mean a lot, but they feel this pressure on them from the marketing point of view. and yeah. I think within those kind of companies, it depends on who who really runs things, the marketing side or the production side. And I think it tends to be the marketing side. So what should we know from a marketing standpoint? What are some red flags when it comes to labels? I, I like your sort of stand of saying, I, I'm going to come at things somewhat skeptically. Mm-hmm. I think maybe a sort of a fundamental skepticism that we might take is the what I call the marketing of non-existence. <laughs> okay. The apple I saw that was uh, labeled as paleo-friendly. <laughs> uh, cavemen would have would love to have ever found something that looks like a modern apple. But right. um, no, it, so it's, I think it just started with the non-fat and the sugar-free mm. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And. We, we have, as a society, have kind of gotten inoculated to this idea that you buy food for what it's not. Mm, yeah. And you have to step back and say, well, wait a minute, that's actually sort of fundamentally absurd. 
I mean, food is something to enjoy for what it is. Mm. Take a look at, at non-fat and, and uh, no cholesterol and yeah. no saturated fat and all that kind of stuff. First of all, it's now come out that the epidemiological studies that they based a lot of that on were wrong. It's also come out... And what do you mean by that? That there were those studies that said that societies, countries that had higher fat diets... Oh, sure. Thank you, Ansel Keys. <laughs> yeah. So those were flawed. And then if you look at what happened in, in the efforts of the food companies to respond to this sort of, oh, now we'll sell things for, for being fat-free or mm -hmm. low-fat mm -hmm. or whatever, there were a couple of things they did that turned out not by any bad intention on their part, but turned out to be bad. For one thing, they substituted a lot of saturated fat with what was called vegetable oil. Yeah. And they all, the, the ingredient that was on there for years before they started labeling trans fats was um, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. Well, my wife was in nutrition in grad school back in, in the 80s, and uh, we, we were looking at what a trans fat was because it was known that when you did this, when, when you take um, certain fats like uh, a soybean oil or something like that and try to turn it into something that could substitute for butter or could be used in a um, deep fryer instead of saturated fat, they, they had to get rid of some of the double bonds that were in those oils. And in the process, they would get a mixture of cis and trans fats and the, the, the stereochemistry, whatever. But we, we made the little molecular models and looked at it and said, well, you know, these are really different shapes. And if the trans fats are very uncommon in food normally, maybe that's not a good idea. So for 20 years, we avoided any products that said partially, dehydro or partially hydrogenated oils and that meant for many years we enjoyed butter and things like that and whole milk. <laughs> and um, I think we've been vindicated in the sense that, A, those turn out to not be the, you know, the evil things that they were portrayed as. And B, fat in the diet really helps you feel full. It helps you feel satiated. And to make some of these no-fat and low-fat foods palatable, companies uh, added more sugars talk about being it. modified right yeah yeah so so basically that that turned out to be a bad lesson although it's still hard you, you go to the store and you want to buy regular full fat yogurt or something like that you have to search hard yeah you do yeah and so that was wrong but then so you, you had everybody sort of primed so then um Gluten-free comes along and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. gluten-free. Mm -hmm. Well, that must be something I need to avoid. Well, unless you have celiac, which is a very real thing, you don't need to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And now GMO, you know, non-GMO comes along and people are programmed to sort of think, oh, well, if it doesn't have something, that's what makes it good. And that's just, that's just wrong. We, we need to sort of reject that idea. I was looking at um, a, a study that said 93% of Americans believe that our foods should be labeled, labeled if they contain GMOs. Right. Why is it that a lot of other countries consider GMOs not to be safe and have you know restrictions or outright bans on the production or the sale of GMOs, and, and we don't? It isn't because there has been any different consensus from their scientific communities. Mm. 
Okay, so if if you look at what the European Food Safety Authority says, or you know, people who track this say, you know, there's something like 300 science bodies around the world that that agree that there is no special risk associated with that. Mm-hmm. But within particularly the EU, uh, it would be an outstanding example. Um, politics trumps science when it comes to regulation. There oh, for sure. And that hasn't been nearly so much the case here. It's kind of drifting that way. Um, But we have here in the U.S. and in Canada tended to be much more science-based in our regulation. So, Do you think we know the long-term impact of GMOs? I mean, you know, you had said at one point that it's it's not really a relevant argument to say, well, we don't know. Um, But do we know, and do we know the long-term effects of GMOs on our environment and, you know, long-term consumption and the effects on, if nothing else, our gut biome? I think we know as much about that as we could about anything. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, what, what people can throw up is sort of an unanswerable question. And, again, the best you can do is say, well, what has actually changed and since i know exactly what's changed i i can sit there and and say okay well what what could that possibly mean you you can actually think it through as opposed to come up with a a new variety through traditional breeding where i have mixed and matched thousands of genes nobody's ever going to be able to check out whether there was some unique combination of genes there that that was undesirable that you could apply that same logic of saying gee you never know Mm -hmm. you could apply that to everything (laughs) and i think you can probably agree that it's it's really confusing and the average consumer myself included we just we just don't want to make a mistake we just want to be right we want something we can hold on to we want some definitives and it feels like every couple of months there's a new report or and and actually if you just go online and go on pubmed you'll find studies that contradict each other and and that gives you no more sense of certainty about what we should be eating we just we just want to do well by ourselves and well by our families but by the same token, it's really confusing. And, and people want, they want, we want rules. We want labels. We want certifying bodies. We want people, we want to know what's healthy. What, you know, even if we don't have a definitive answer or a crystal mm-hmm. ball to know long-term, what are the effects? We want to know generally speaking. And I think that is why so many people kind of hang on to these preconceived notions of, organic labeling or non-GMO or, um, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished, these kinds of labels that we see in supermarkets because we don't know who to trust. Right. But then you sort of have to throw into the balance in terms of who do you trust. What you've described involves not not only the labeling of what's in stores, but also some of the background stuff and and various uh, NGOs and and some of the scientists that they specifically fund to to do research to come up with the findings that that would suit their purposes. This is a multi-million, multi-billion-dollar effort in terms of marketing. Do you trust that? Mm. Because there's a lot of money to be made from scaring people. And I I think actually when you look at something like organic, um, 
there are a lot of, I would say, sort of more innocent parties that have a vested interest. Uh, so if, if you're a, a retailer and uh, you're able to have a higher profit upsell category in organic, why not? Uh, what incentive do you have not to do that, whether it's true or not? But unfortunately, I, it's a phenomenon that I like to call um, reaping profit while sowing doubt. Mm. Because every time that the consumer is sort of faced with that option, um, do I spend more uh, on, on the organic? The implication is, well, you probably need to. There must be something wrong. Scientific authorities would not say that. The USDA itself says their certification is not a safety certification. Yeah. They, they're right up front about that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the sort of subtle message that you're getting through all the marketing. Yeah, it's it's not about food security necessarily. And I think to be transparent, it's fair to let listeners know that, you know, you have worked for many of these companies. And that's important to note, because as we both can agree, there's a natural bias, we all have a natural bias. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that each each of us kind of taking all the information and consider, as you said, marketing consumerism, um, you, you know, the fact that Monsanto controls 90% of genetically modified foods worldwide is... They don't actually. They don't? <laughs> well, what's the number? No, no I, I don't know what the number is, but um, they have... The majority, we can say. The, nobody dominates all those markets. The, the number that gets thrown around, mm -hmm. like the 90%, mm -hmm. So, so maybe 90% of a certain crop has a certain biotech trait in it. Sure. But that doesn't mean that they control that seed market because the, the strategy that they've pursued and actually other companies have pursued as well tends to be what they call broad licensing. So when you have a trait like a insect resistance or a herbicide tolerance trait. And by trait, you mean uh, like a seed that has that genetic trait. Right. But once you have one plant that has that, mm -hmm. from then on, the way that you put that into other varieties and other hybrids is through conventional crosses. Mm -hmm. the, there was only one plant originally that was, you know, the modified plant. And then from then it's, it's put into all the other things. And so if you're in a corn crop, there are different corn hybrids for every little part of the country based on the weather and the soil and things like that and mm -hmm. the, the seed length. And there's lots of different corn seed companies. And basically, they all were given access to that. And they pay, you know, they pay a certain royalty. But it's the 99.9% .9 of the genes in those varieties were their varieties. Mm. I wouldn't call that controlling the market. What I would call controlling the market is being able to intimidate large companies to not do it. So, for instance, at the same year that biotech soybeans were launched and biotech cotton, there was a biotech potato. Mm -hmm. That was a Monsanto potato, and it, it had the BT gene, and it made it resistant to the Colorado potato beetle, the biggest insect pest of potatoes. And 
the potato growers were really excited about it. I, I was working uh, on a multi-client report, and I, I interviewed people all throughout the potato industry, and, and they, they thought this was great. And there was a lot of interest in doing some other biotech things in potatoes to do with storage and you know food waste loss and all that kind of stuff. Um, when the anti-biotech stuff really started heating up in the late 90s, um, McDonald's and other fast food companies were beginning to realize that this could be a brand th- threat to them, that activists could stage protests outside their stores, whatever. And these are very brand protective companies. Mm-hmm. And they basically caved in and said, in three phone calls, they were able to ask the processing potato industry, could you not give us any biotech potatoes? Mm-hmm. And said, yes, sir. And um, that was it. And, you know, Monsanto just had to give up. Mm-hmm. So who controlled the food supply there? Well, in whose interest? I guess we can, that's the question. Would you, would you personally, do you use Roundup? Oh, yeah, I certainly do. I mean, because the biggest uses huh. of Roundup that preceded any biotech uses were in ornamentals, uh, in, you know, in, in yards, in garden care, you know, landscape management, and like I said, in perennial crops. Um, and yeah, I, I totally use that because it actually really works. Oh, yeah, it's good at killing things. That's for sure. And you're not worried about the potential side effects? No, 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 because I'm, you know, very familiar with the toxicology there. And I certainly appreciate you coming on to share with me this perspective. I think it's brave. I also think it's <laughs> important to, you know, that we hear both sides of the story because it's really easy to have a target. It's really easy for us to villainize an industry. I think that's easy to do. I can't say that I am comfortable from just friends who've experienced cancers and and uh, you know memories of using Roundup and and just the I maybe it's just a preponderance of negative information and and reading through court documents and blogs and and trying to understand what we're putting on our plate and and understanding all of this you know just there's so there's an overwhelming amount of negative information there's and and not to say that all of it's substantiated but I've actually read court transcripts and looked at photocopies on different blogs of inner office memorandums from Monsanto not so much around glyphosate, but in you know past discrepancies. So there's a level of distrust there nat- on, on my part. Uh, so I mm-hmm. have to say that you know, as, as much as I really appreciate this conversation, I, I still feel like that we don't know. For me, is strong enough reason to avoid it. Um, I don't feel sufficiently convinced. But you have opened up my my mind and my eyes to take a look at, like you said, the people who are marketing what a product is not. And how loud that marketing can be sometimes. Like it's sometimes I think the quieter our food is, you know, the more you can trust it, kind of yeah. thing. Um, but I do I do appreciate this conversation. Well, I, I think there's there's a really good example of of something. Um, have you heard about the Arctic apple? No. This is an apple that all that they've done actually is turn off a gene for. It's called polyphenol oxidase. It's it's the enzyme that when you cut an apple, it starts turning it brown, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's because of a specific enzyme. And uh, there's a way to turn that off. 
And the company that developed that, um, at the time that they were doing that development, and it took it took many many years because it was a very tiny company with seven employees. The uh, the founder, this the CEO, uh, is a farmer, and uh, I know the day I met him, uh, he had been out uh, running the sprayer through the orchard before our meeting, um, and they kind of sort of you know the conventional wisdom was that this was so hard to do and the regulations were so intense that it could only ever be done by a large company and it's this tiny little canadian company mm. that that brought this thing through and actually this all apple. the way through yeah and it's not something you're going to be able to see quickly because it takes a long time to grow apple trees mm. but they finally have approval in both the US and Canada and i've had a chance to have these apples and I think it's really going to kind of change the conversation for a lot of consumers because this is an apple that you can slice and then, you know, like three or four <laughs> hours late, say by the time it was lunchtime, it'll still be nice and white. But in addition to that, I mean, you can do that with the kind of sliced apples you can buy today. Mm-hmm. But the thing that they use to keep the enzyme from working, mm-hmm. it ruins the the aroma. Mm-hmm. But this will still smell like a freshly cut apple, okay, mm-hmm. and taste like it. And um, I think it's really going to prevent a lot of food waste. It, it, you know, it, and they make beautiful dried apples without having to put any sulfites on them. Mm. And sulfites are an actual issue for some people, yeah. not for everybody. Yeah. But they're also, they also don't taste great, right? Yeah. And so, but the anti-GMO people, you know, they've said, well, what we don't like is that it's a foreign gene. Well, this is, you know, only involving an apple gene and it isn't actually adding a gene, it's turning off a gene. Yeah, it is turning off a gene. Say, well, it's all because it's big companies and they're controlling the food supply. Well, this is seven... And that's what we're trying to do with our, you know, our own epigenetics is turn off genes, you know, try to have certain genes not expressed that are negative. Like, you know, would be great if we could find a way to turn off the gene that... that, uh, makes us wrinkle <laughs> yeah that would yeah, be that fantastic would, yeah you could make a fortune on that one um the reason i point this out is just the people who are against it mm-hmm. they're against even this and i think mm-hmm. that sort of shows their hand which is that what we're really about is we just want people to be afraid of this and so it doesn't matter exactly what it is we're going to be against it and really, I mean, realistically, when we're talking about feeding the world, it, is it even possible? Is it even possible to do that with a crop that doesn't yield the same harvest? Is it, is it even possible? Well, what I like to say is there is no single technology that will feed the world. And actually, the only thing that will feed the world is farmers. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to sort of pay attention to what makes sense to farmers um and i don't ask that question hypothetically i mean you you've yeah. you've looked at the numbers is, is it even possible to feed the world's population without genetically modified crops i would say not without the full toolbox mm. and so wherever we limit ourselves so if if so for instance if you're europe and you say I'm not going to allow that um, that particular part of the toolbox. Um, 
that works for them because they're rich enough to import what they can't produce themselves, but they're competing with the poor people of the world mm-hmm. for the, the global supply. So, yeah, I again, I, I don't want to overstate any one technology that you sort of need them all. In fact, you need them all together. And uh, that... I think it's possible because if you look at what we've done over the last 50 years, we've been able to keep up with global food demand. Some of that has occurred through adding more land, but not nearly as much as has occurred through getting more off of the land that we already have. And we're to the point now globally where there really isn't that much more land to add. So that what, what you need to do is what they call rational intensification. You know, environmental groups like World Wildlife Fund sort of get it. It's like, no, you know, if we really want to protect wildlife and uh, the wild places on Earth, what we need to do is make sure that we can, you know, cover the the need that we have, which will probably be increasing for another 40, 50 years till it levels off. Mm -hmm. We need to do that on the same land. And that's feasible as long as we don't sort of tie the farmer's hand behind his back Mm. or her back. Well, we're both on the side of the farmer. Steve, thank you so much for your perspective, your experience for um, just bringing a calm perspective, one that I think is not often heard. And uh, I appreciate that. And I I think it's important that, as I said, we we look at all of this stuff with a healthy dose of skepticism and understand Mm. that there are valid arguments on both sides and that it's up to us as a consumer as the as an advocate for our own health to make these decisions and make sure that they are informed well and i appreciate the chance and i i uh i'm, I'm glad you're you're doing the effort that you're doing to sort through these things help people do that that's awesome and steve where can people learn more about you or uh, catch up on some of your blogs i have a blog site i, I do various places but I, I put almost everything uh sooner or later up on my applied mm-hmm. mythology uh, web or blog site and uh, then I I don't tweet very much but <laughs> I, I usually will tweet uh, if I post something or if I see something really useful and that's at grape doc so people can learn more and link to um, some of your writings and videos by going to drstevesavage.com and that's Doctor with a DR, stevesavage.com. Steve, thanks again for being a guest of The Shaleen Show. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Smart Life Push Journal. Write that down smartlifepushjournal.com. It's a system I created over five years ago, which to date has helped over a half a million people accomplish their goals, become more productive, healthier, and happier in the process. It revolves around the push goal principles. Now, if you don't know what a push goal is, no problem. The Smart Life Push Journal will actually walk you through the process of finding yours, creating it, and then accomplishing that goal and all the others on your list in less than 90 days. I've taught this system for countless years, and while it works for anyone who does it, it was difficult to help people develop the habit of just creating a push goal and then accomplishing two to three 10-minute tasks each day around their push goal. Like, that seems like common sense. And and you know that if you just do a few things each day towards your big goals that they're going to happen. But how do we make that a habit? Well, 
My 90-day goal-setting system revolves around a physical journal that turns that concept into a habit. Now, if you're looking for one of those really fancy, pretty journals that, you know, has your whole year, plus your electricity bill, plus all of your birthday cards, and it's so big and so cumbersome, you can barely carry it around, this is not your journal. I've designed this journal because I was a journal junkie. I went through hundreds of journals. I tried to create my own. I played with apps. But after looking at the neuroscience behind physically writing out these tasks, after spending so much time trying to figure out complicated day tracking journal systems and realizing I was spending more time putting on fancy borders and tapes and colors, it just dawned on me. My whole purpose is about simplicity. Like, let's make things simple. Fewer decisions, fewer distractions, a lightweight, easy to carry with you, portable journal. It's a 90-day goal-setting system where you'll set goals to accomplish in the next 90 days, and then you pluck away at them 30 days at a time. So you don't carry around with you a journal that holds a year's worth of information or even 90 days. You carry around 30 days at a time. And that's important because in my study and in working with hundreds of thousands of people just like you, I found that things come up that change your goals, that change your direction. Life throws you curveballs and you need that fluidity. At the same time, you need accountability. It's like walking around with a life coach in your bag, in your purse, in your hand. You'll always have it with you. That was key. Because if you don't have it with you, then your goals, your dreams, and the tasks that you need to accomplish in order to master your goals are out of sight, out of mind. It's simple. It's fast. It does two things. It helps you track your health and fitness, which also includes your diet and nutrition, your sleep, all things that make you better, healthier. And it helps you track your day, your life. So you intertwine both business and personal. This is for the stay-at-home mom. This is for the entrepreneur, the network marketer. This is for the college student. This is for the person whose dreams are so big, they don't have time to turn their day planner into another cumbersome, huge, overwhelming project. It's simple. And it also includes a complete video series that teaches you how to use a journal. Because if you're like me, I don't like to read instructions. But how you use this journal is what makes it so amazing. I hope you'll check it out and learn more by going to smartlifepushjournal.com.